Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is both practical and contemporary, that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Tell me that you never had a single doubt. Tell me that you never had a single moment in which you wondered, is this for real or am I just wrong? Is this for real or am I just believing some story? Well, if you ever had any doubt, well, you're in good company. You're in good company and there is a person who has addressed that and resolved that for all of us. But obviously there is much more to it than that, isn't there? And part of that is the fact that we would all expect the Lord Jesus to act differently than he did. He was captured, and at first, we might have gone after the Roman guard and say, let's fight for him. And then he said, no, it needs to be. So we saw him captured, taken, scourged, crucified. And what was our response to that? Well, denial. I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Never seen him. Abandonment, the disciples all scattered and left him. And that in itself would be enough for every one of us to expect the Lord coming back with a little bit of fear. I mean, after all, just before that, we had proclaimed to him, hey, Lord, we will follow you even to death. And then we abandoned him. Any human leader would probably say, why have you abandoned me? Where were you in my hour of need? What happened to you when I was suffering? But look at that. The doors were shut means locked. The disciples were afraid, already afraid of the Jews. So there is fear already there in the hearts of the disciples. They were afraid that the Jews would go for them next. So fear is already there, plus regret. I can just imagine Peter, his thoughts after denying Christ. And remembering that Christ himself told him, hey, listen, Peter, before before dawn, you're going to deny me three times. But then... All of a sudden, even though the doors were locked, and obviously because they were afraid of the Jews, everything was closed clearly so that nobody would come in, all of a sudden, here comes Jesus in the midst of them. Now, as he appears to them, he doesn't say what you would expect him to say. Hey, where were you? What happened to you? Why did you abandon me? Why did you leave me? He said, peace be with you. That's interesting. Shalom. Not quite what they would expect. But it reminds you of something else in just a few chapters before, chapter 14 and verse 27, where Jesus, as he was encouraging the disciples, preparing them from what was about to happen, his sacrifice, one of the things he said was, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. 
So don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. It's interesting. Then, then when he would appear to them, he would say, peace be with you. But then after he has said that, while the disciples were still holding their breath, probably, he showed them his sins and his side. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Kind of interesting because he could show them the body, could say, touch it, feel it. And yet he could appear right in the midst of them, even though everything was locked down. So yes, people say, well, he has a physical body. I say, listen, the physical body doesn't go through the wall, but a glorified state that he is now representing and, and showing uh, can also uh, manifest itself physically uh, because you can touch it. He actually ate. So don't ask me how the mechanics of all of that work because I have not been resurrected yet um, and I haven't talked to anyone who has been resurrected. But I trust that God knows how to make it work and what it's going to be. One thing, however, I know for sure, just in case you're worried that you're going to be resurrected with the same problems you had when you died, <laughs> I can reassure you it will be a bit different, all right? And we're not going to be as limited as we are. But notice, he, first of all, I want you to see one thing. The disciples are not out there searching for him. Did you notice that? The disciples are gathered together, afraid, hiding. And in a moment of crisis, while they are hiding, while they are afraid, Jesus is the one coming to them. He's the one taking the first step. He's the one showing himself and, and, and reaching out to them, just like he reaches out to us right there. And he reaches out to them in peace to give them reassurance. Don't be afraid. Look, it's really me. What you heard that... I was risen, is true. Here, look. And he shows it to reassure them. And that's why they rejoice at that point. That's why the fear now is replaced with joy. Joy at the fact that he is alive. He is risen. So then Jesus said to them again, guess what? Peace be with you. As my Father has sent me, also I sent you. So now he's commissioning them to go out. In his name, just as the Father has sent him, he sends us. Just as the Father loves him, he loves us. And you see that connection. And when he has said this, he did something interesting. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I understand that that is enablement. Now, Jesus reaches out to us. He reassures us. He commissions us. And he enables us to do what he's called us to do. Now, do we have a part in that? Yes, yes we do. But that part is not for us to enable ourselves. He breathed on them. Does that remind you of anything like Genesis 2-7? When God created humans, a man, and he made him out of the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into him and he became alive. He received life from God. Now God breathes unto them and he says, receive a newness of life in the Holy Spirit. You see, the life that Jesus Christ ushered as a risen human, yes, fully God, but also fully human, but now a glorified human as well. The first among many brethren, as Scripture says, the first to be ushered into that state of glorified human and eternal life as human as well as God. He's now passing it on. 
just like God gave us this physical life to begin with, now he's giving us a newness of life. And he doesn't say, you will one day. He says here, receive the Holy Spirit. Implying with that what? That the Holy Spirit is not just an enablement to do something, like you might have seen it in the Old Testament when people were commissioned to do certain things and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were given the skill and the things to do that particular thing, but that was it. Now here we're talking about a newness of life. We're talking about eternal life. The eternal life that you will share with God forever is already within you because of the Holy Spirit. You and I are already partaking of that. As Peter then says, we are partakers of the divine nature. We're already also partaking of the divine life. I find it as a sobering thought because when I think about that, when I think that God has already given us that eternal life that is already within us by the Holy Spirit, and we already can start living that life now, it makes me wonder how I live my life. And it makes me appreciate the statements that oftentimes the Apostle Paul makes to walk not in the flesh, to live not in the flesh, as if the flesh, this, this body, this physical body that we have right now, is all there is, but to live by and in the Spirit. And that means live in that eternal life, that God has already given us. Much more can be said, but let's go on with the, with the passage here. Verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. How much teaching and misteaching and bad teaching has been given about this verse? How many doctrines have been established on the weight of these words, the way they were translated in the Latin especially, only to be misunderstood? And here's my point. I will add to the much talk of this verse. But I'm not going to add anything unusual or anything new. I'm just going to inform you of this. God has never given either you or the apostles, or as some people say here, Peter, the right for remission of sins. You cannot forgive sins. Neither does an apostle. Neither does even Peter or a pope or anybody else because only one can forgive sins. And that one is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And even he does not just forgive sin just by saying, okay, forget. No, even he does not dismiss sin in that way. He forgives sin because he has shed his blood for it. So for us to assume that with these words he said we have the now the the right to forgive sin or as some people say of the remission of sins is very presumptuous and takes on a messianic position that none of us can handle. So what does that mean? Well, the Greek gives us a bit of a hint. But in this case, the translation is a bit tough because the Greek tense of the verbs is a little bit different from the English. But the New American Standard Bible, I think, has done a pretty good job in rendering that in a sense that it says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. Notice that tense of the verb, have been. That is what the Greek says. It's past tense. It's a done thing. Have previously 
been forgiven is the meaning of the Greek. So whenever you find a translation that says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins will be forgiven, that is a mistranslation because the Greek is not in the future tense at all. It's in the past tense. And that kind of tense that says it has already happened. So what does it mean? If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have already been previously forgiven. Here's what it means. Not the remission of sins, but the proclamation and a declaration of forgiveness in Christ. And that's what you see the apostles do. You look through all of the book of the Acts. You will never see once any of the apostles forgiving sin. But we always find them proclaiming the forgiveness of sin in Christ. That's what they do. And as they proclaim it, they also declare it. Like, your sins have been forgiven. Okay, now, when I say, sometimes when I baptize people, well, when I am the human instrument that Christ uses for that, right? Sometimes I like to tell the person, congratulations, your sins have been forgiven. Am I forgiving sin? No. Am I remitting sin? No. I am declaring what has already occurred, that Christ has forgiven you. But it is good to assert that it is good not just to proclaim it, but to declare it as well. Yes, your sins have been forgiven. And it is the job of the church to assert that. It is the job of the church to declare that as well as to proclaim it. But let's say we proclaim forgiveness of sin in Christ and someone says, yeah, I don't want to have anything to deal with that. Then the second part of the statement is, if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. In other words, the church is being given the discernment that comes with the fact that if you know that someone denies Christ or rejects Christ, their sins are not forgiven. How can they be where they can only be forgiven in Christ? You might say, but the work that Jesus Christ has done is already being done, already accomplished. He already died for those sins. Yes, but remember the metaphor of the gift. I have given you a million dollar check. How would you like that? You probably wouldn't mind that, would you? The check is already written and signed. It actually is a certified check from the bank. It's not even a personal check. It's a certified check from the bank. And it's in your name. Your name is there. That money basically is yours. And it's now proclaimed to you that you have this money. But now you take the check and you toss it to the side and say, yeah, sure, whatever. Guess what? I don't think your bank account is going to grow by itself. I don't think you're going to benefit from a check at all. What does it take to benefit from that check is for you to accept it and put it to use. Take it to the bank and deposit it in the bank. Now your bank account is going to go woo, way up. But you see the point. The point is not that Jesus has not died for them. I mean, that is, that is one doctrine that goes around, that Jesus only died for the elect. Well, no, Jesus' scripture is very clear. Jesus died for everyone, right? But who benefits from that gift that he has given us are the ones who accept that gift. The ones who reject the gift, they reject it. If you reject that check, you will not benefit from it. So, not remission of sins, but the proclamation of forgiveness in Christ and the declaration that that forgiveness has taken place. As well as the declaration, maybe at that point we should call it the warning, that, look, if you reject the gift of God, there is no forgiveness. Besides Christ, outside of Christ, there is no forgiveness. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus. Didymus means the twin. So Thomas the twin was not with them when Jesus came. I hear people coming up and say, you know, I'm a Christian. I don't need to attend church. 
I, I got a relationship with God. I know God. I know Christ. I don't need to go to church. Well, Thomas did not go to assemble with the, the apostles and the other disciples that day. And he missed out on something very important. Jesus was among them. And Thomas did not know. He did not see him. He did not connect with him. And you know what? Whenever two or three are gathered in, in God's name, in Christ's name, he is very specially present, not only in them, but with them. Sometimes, when we neglect the assembly together with the brothers and sisters in Christ, we may be missing an epiphany. We may be missing one of those moments in which Jesus himself manifests himself to you. And maybe others benefited from that. Maybe others benefited from that moment where Jesus Christ manifested himself to his disciples. But if you weren't among them, you might have missed out something. Thomas did. He was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, you should be there next time because you really missed out. What? You missed out on the fact that we have seen the Lord. And Thomas says, well, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Yeah, there's a reason why people call him the doubting Thomas. <clears throat> but who's not a doubting Thomas? Really? Can you say you never doubted anything? Can I say that? So perhaps we're all doubting Thomas in a way or another. Perhaps we all say, well, I really need more evidence, God. God, if you can just show me a little more of this and that or whatever the case may be in that moment when we ask him for more, we are joining Thomas in that statement. I will not believe unless fill in the blank. And by the way, I would like for you to notice here before we go any further that Thomas said, I will not believe unless I not only see, but I touch. Okay, keep that in mind. So why is this recorded? So that we can blame Thomas and say, oh, this bad person? Or is it recorded for us perhaps because Thomas is very important for you and me. Because Thomas has done what you and I cannot do. Thomas brought up the question and faced the question in a way that you and I cannot. So Thomas represents all of us in that sense, in our doubts, in our moments of, of unbelief, in our moments of doubts. Thomas is there on our behalf to resolve that doubt. Here's what happens. After eight days, or it could also be translated a week later, so some people understand it to mean the next Sunday. So all of that until now happened in the, first, in the Sunday of the resurrection. And the next Sunday, his disciples were again inside, and this time Thomas decided to attend the fellowship. Thomas decided to be among them. And Jesus came, the doors had been locked, and stood in their midst. Again, he was not there, and then he was there. And said, peace be with you. And as he said, peace be with you, then he said to Thomas, Thomas, come over here. Reach here with your finger, right? Touch here with your hand and put it in my side. Notice what he said. Put it into my side. So Thomas, you can stick your hand inside that wound if you want to. And don't be unbelieving, but be believing. Stop being in the grips of such doubts. Jesus, Jesus reached out to Thomas. Thomas did not go looking for Jesus. Again, you notice the pattern? Jesus reached out to Thomas, addressed Thomas in his doubt, and said, Thomas, resolve 
your doubt. Stop being doubtful. Address the doubt. Resolve it. Resolve the question that you have. Here, come on, touch it. Feel it. You wanted to feel it? Feel it right here. But Thomas didn't. I, I don't know. You see many pictures of Thomas reaching out and touching Jesus. You know that. Look at the passage and you see Thomas never touched Jesus. He didn't need to. He fell on his knees, answered, and said to Jesus, My Lord, my God. So here's Thomas representing all your doubts and fears and questions, addressing the questions. Jesus, in fact, goes to him and says, Thomas, stop doubting. Address your doubts. Resolve the doubt. Here's the answer. Touch, feel. And as a result of that, Thomas falls down on his knees and declares, My Lord, my God, he's done for you what you cannot do. He checked it out. And his answer, after checking it out, is, my Lord, my God. So Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, notice, he didn't say because you touched me. He said, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Now, Thomas could have touched him, and I'm sure that they did. They shook hands, they hugged, or whatever they did. Jesus ate with them anyway, so the fellowship was there. But the point that I'm trying to make is that Thomas did not need to stick his hand in there. Like he said, I don't believe until he saw what he needed to see, and that was enough. He did no, longer, no longer needed to go and touch to make that declaration. A declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. But Jesus said, blessed are those who did not see and believe. Blessed are those who understand blessed are those who receive that testimony and through that testimony they believe without needing to see because someone else named thomas has seen for you someone else named thomas has checked it out for you someone who did not want to believe until he had evidence fell on his knees and proclaimed my god Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe. Okay, believe in what? Not in the signs. That's not what John says. Later on, at the end of the, of the gospel, in verse 25 of chapter 21, says there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that not even the world itself would contain the book's that would be written. So here it says, many other signs Jesus performed, but the ones that were recorded were recorded for a purpose, and the purpose is not for us to believe in the signs. The purpose, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is Messiah, so that we may believe in him, the Son of God, and then believing you may have life in his name. There is no sign in the whole world that can give you life. There is no miracle in the whole universe that can give you life. There is no supernatural event in the whole universe that can give you life. Only Him can give you life. It's not about the signs. It's not about the miracles. It's about Him. Because it's a personal relationship. And let's not forget what Jesus taught us. The many will come to him and say, Lord, haven't we done all this type of things in your name? And Jesus says, oh, an interesting statement. I don't know you. It's not about doing. It's not about signs. It's not about miracles. It's not about works. It's not about any of that. It's about knowing him. That's the key. These signs were written so that you would know that he is indeed Messiah. So that you can join in in echo with the 
statement and the declaration of Thomas as he falls on his knees, his doubts being resolved and proclaims, my Lord, my God. It was your eyes. It was your hands. And he saw and he proclaimed. Now is our turn. Because remember Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I also sent you. Address your doubts. If any left, address them. Deal with them. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas, don't be unbelieving. Stop being unbelieving. Address your doubts. Address your fears. Address your questions and resolve them. Be believing. Believing is not wishful thinking. Believing is resolving a question, resolving a doubt, and understanding the truth about God, the truth about Messiah, the truth about your salvation, the truth about your future, the truth about the eternal life that God has already shared with us and placed in us in the dwelling in, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Truth is what belief is based on. So, like Jesus said to Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. He did. What about you?